Welcome to the Dellingpot with me, James Dellingpot. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but before I introduce him, a quick word from our sponsors. Here I am, James, with the bit you love, the bit where we talk about our sponsors and other bits of housekeeping. I haven't bothered to get into the original clothes that I was wearing for the rest of the video. I thought about it for continuity purposes, and I thought, sod it. Anyway, various things I want to tell you about. The first of all is the event I've got coming up with David Icke in Manchester on the 15th of November. I think you would be insane not to make it if you possibly can. It's going to be a gathering of the clans. All your friends are going to be there. People are going to be talking about it afterwards. I mean, it's Dellingpole and Ike. It's the moment you've been, been waiting for. There's all sorts of stuff I want to ask him about. I'm obviously going to ask him about the lizard people, which I totally agree with. I'm also going to quiz him on some of his, his sort of views on religion and stuff. I don't think he gets challenged enough on those. But it's going to be, I hope, a conversation, David, not a monologue. Conversation, yeah, with James. Other things um, are... Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful sponsors. Uh, please do do support them if you can. Um, I mean, some of you generously support me with 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 um, money in various forms, whether you buy me a coffee or on Subscribestar or, or or Substack and Locals and Patreon and Patreon and so on. And that's really kind of you. Those of you who don't who are feeling a bit guilty, and and, and you're quite right to feel guilty. You should support me can help in other ways. One of the things you can do is download or subscribe Tinderella. Tinderella, I've now, he, he, he advertised on a previous podcast and I've now listened to his electronica and it's great. You should subscribe and download Lotus stuff. What have you got to lose? Even if you hate it, which you, which you won't because he, he's good. Listen to his stuff because he supported the Delling Pod and so should you support him. Same goes for our other sponsors, the, the Pure Gold Company, if you want to own physical gold or, or store it in a vault in Switzerland or, or London, or if you want to earn, uh, own gold where you can earn interest on the gold, uh, in which case you go to Monetary Metals. All the details are in the, in the blurb below this podcast. Now, let's meet this week's special guest. Enjoy. I do this thing, John, where I, I just insert it rather than yeah. having to, you to sit through it. Okay, I know that's a good actually adaptation of the of the um, the old uh, line. You know, it's a good way of doing. So, um, I've John Waters. I have been so looking forward to this. I I've been feeling quite down recently. I mean, for pretty obvious reasons, and I know that chatting to you is going to cheer me up because you can talk. You can talk. Not only can you talk and digress, which is which is what I love in this in this this podcast, but also you're one of the, the really very few passing few people out there who has been on the same journey as me and has looked around at the at the people that one used to perhaps look up to as 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 one's maybe even our intellectual superiors or uh, people also who, who, who you thought were going to be our allies and who've completely sold the pass. I could, when, was, when did we last talk? It's about two ago? and a half years ago. I think it was 
just February or so of 2021. So we were about a year into the whole uh, uh, shit show. And uh, I think that's when it was. Now, I may be mistaken, but I think that's when it right. was. Right. But time, and, I mean, like we're three and a half years, nearly four years we've been in this tunnel, you know? It's it's so incredible. It's 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 weird, isn't it? This, this um, discovering that the world that you thought you knew was in fact just a, a tissue of, of, of lies. Yes. Um, and looking around and realizing that most people still don't get it at yeah. all. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, and, and really our, my former profession or our former profession and to the extent that we're no longer journalists, I, I bridle at the word journalist now as, yeah. a, as a description of myself. And I've left my wife instructions that when I die, if any of my obituaries, if there are any, mention the word journalist, that she should demand a correction and clarification the following day and say that I recanted. And, and renounced all journalistic claims. Uh, it, it's funny you say that because I'm 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 the same. Uh, when people ask me what I do, I don't say anymore. I'm a journalist. I say, yeah, I do podcasts. I used to be a journalist. Yes, but it's all really, isn't it? That the word has become tainted. Yes, people say, "Oh, you, John Walters," and I say, "I used to be." Yeah, uh, uh, you know. Uh, by the way, I've got a, a gammy eye. I've got a kind of a black eye, which I don't know what. How, you know, I don't know people. It might be off-putting for people, but it, it makes me look a bit. I don't know, funny. Uh, but don't, other than that, I'm not worried by it. I I hadn't noticed. Um, but but I know that there are some people who who look at videos because there are, there are two types of people, aren't there? The, the ones who who digest podcasts orally. Or AU, not <laughs> they don't eat them, and 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 those and those who um, who like the visuals, and yeah. they're the sort of people sometimes who who will be, for example, scrutinising the books on your the spines of your books on your shelf behind oh, yeah, you. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I, I I forgot to check them, James. You never know. Uh, that's yeah. another thing. Have you have you been doing what I've been doing, which is sort of chucking out books from from the sort of normie world? Because because most of my library is is is. Oh, oh yeah, not oh well, no, not chucking out. I, mean, I I don't want my wife to hear this because she knows above all people. I refuse to throw out any book of any kind. In fact, I I pick up books everywhere. But what? But a thing that I can identify with in what you say is a syndrome that I'd never encountered in all my life is that I get a book now and almost certainly by the end of the first paragraph and sometimes in the first sentence, it is completely rendered dead to me. Yes. Because of some reference to something that I know to be utterly false. Yeah. And utterly, you know, anybody who would write such a sentence cannot write a decent book. That's that's kind of the way I look on it. Yeah. And I immediately abandoned the book, even though I've been intrigued by. I saw one recently. It was about. It had the title was twenty thirty, and I thought, oh, that's an interesting concept because some of the stuff sounded like it was kind of. It was written in twenty twenty, and it sounded like uh, it was kind of a little bit about the great great recess, but maybe parallel to that in its thinking and the way the world was developing in different ways. But the very first sentence was about the world warming up and all this, and I said, no, nah, I, I, my life is too precious now. What's left of it to be wasting on books like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a, I had a similar experience. I people sort of post up videos in my in my channel, 
and I occasionally glance to see whether they're, they're of interest. And there was one where this chap was giving a lecture, and in the first, in the first minute, he referenced as if they were real things, both evolution, um, and then he used dinosaurs to, uh, as an example of things that were once with us and that have gone away. And I was thinking, well, I'm not going to bother, mate. You know, you've got nothing of interest to tell me because because your yeah. your understanding of the world is 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 limited. Well, this is the extraordinary thing, James, isn't it? That yes, that is true, but we don't know the new. That's the old version of the world, and it has fallen apart for us. And yet, the new world has yet to be the the world as it actually was is only really forming itself in partially, like a jigsaw, which has only begun really. Little bits and patches here and there, the corners are maybe building in, and a little bit of the edges, and maybe a little section in the middle. But so that in the meantime, we are actually bereft of any understanding of reality at all, in a sense. We, oh, we are rudderless in a, in. Because I haven't discounted the possibility. Uh, lots of lots of my followers are very insistent that, that 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 this is the case. I haven't discounted the possibility that the world may not even be a globe. Mm-hmm. I mean, all bets are off at this point. I, yes. I I think anyone who has who is truly awake must perforce recognise that that everything that they previously thought they understood about the world may be, may be a lie. And yet, James, and, and I wonder if you feel this, because I do very much, and I think perhaps you'd feel it less than I do, that in certain areas, you mentioned one of them there, uh, even though you, we may have that feeling, it's stronger than a suspicion. It's the fact that everything else is a lie, so why not that? That kind of idea. And yet, even though you see people around you who are now kind of beginning to blurt this out, I'm inclined to be reticent about things like that. And I kind of call it like it's like limbo dancing, that we try to we try to keep talking about things in a way that is at least partially coherent, that may make sense to somebody who just happens upon us and doesn't really know much about what we're talking about. So that we have to still make sense on the old terms in some way in order to hold people's attention and not appear to be, you know, candidates for the local psychiatric institution in their view. Well, you, you, you see the point like that, that you kind of therefore avoid certain topics altogether because you know that uh, you don't know what exactly is, is true about this anymore. But nevertheless, you know for sure that r- talking about this will either get you into deep trouble or will get you tired as a complete Idiot. Yes, this 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 may be one of the the, the, the rare points of difference between us. I, I I did a I did a podcast recently. I, I think you, you've told me you haven't caught up with all my recent ones. Um, I did a podcast with Ed Dowd. Yes. Um, about and, and Ed lives in Hawaii, and I thought, well, here is the man to tell me whether or not it was caused by directed energy weapons and 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 tell me about why it is that houses with blue roofs are not are not affected whereas houses with red roofs are and 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 stuff like this and he didn't 
want to go there. It was obvious to me. He, you know, he was he was he was blaming it on things which were stuff from the conventional narrative. It was all you know. It was probably some sort of extreme weather event, which I don't I don't believe for a moment. And I, I think it was a tactic. I think he had decided that I am the man who does vaccine injury. Um, I am interested in verifiable statistics and and hard and and, and verifiable facts. And that's what I do. And I don't want to jeopardize my credibility on the vaccine injury front by talking about crazy stuff like directed energy weapons. Whereas for me, I'm a pure, you might say, a a suicidal truth seeker. (laughs) I will go wherever the truth yes wherever the evidence takes me however bizarre it, it it might be okay well that's interesting and i think that's a very admirable position although i think it's also a very difficult one to, to it can become as you know and, and will become more so uh, but uh, i'm a little bit more pragmatic than that james and it is pragmatism in this sense that i kind of say okay well i'm in ireland right yeah and my my primary gripe in all of this is with my government, hmm. who are democratically elected, supposedly, yeah. and who are supposedly representing the Irish people and have ceased to do so. And not alone that, have been attacking the Irish people now for 43 months. So in my view, you know, there are people around me and people that I know and people I admire and respect and so on who are taking the battle to other fronts and, and drawing bigger pictures hmm. uh, about certain factions for example that may be involved and i will touch on those things from time to time but it's not my primary concern i i simply want to say to the to the irish teacher to the, to the prime minister of ireland what do you think you're doing what gives you the right to do these things explain to me where you get your authority from because i don't remember giving you authority as an irish citizen to do these things please explain yourself that's kind of my position now, I know that that's somewhat evasive of the bigger picture. And in a certain sense, that's true. But I, there's also the sense of, well, the bigger picture belongs in other places. I mean, people in America have a much more uh, much more responsibility to tease out this picture at the, at the bigger level than somebody in Ireland, I would suggest. And, and the reality is they're waiting all the time to get us, you see. Like, you know, I mean, I find them all the time coming after me now. Uh, they're beginning to close in now because they see that I'm beginning to reach people and that people are coming to me. It's not so much much that I'm reaching people, actually. It's that people are searching out now for those voices and trying to beginning to say, oh, that guy, I thought he was crazy, but actually he's still here and he's still saying these things. Maybe I should be listening, you know, and that's dangerous in a certain sense. It's great in one way, but it's dangerous because that's when you then start noticing the things going bump in the night as they start to come after you. I think, look, I, I think there are dangers in, there are, there are flaws, let's say, in both uh, tactics. I would say that that the problem with your method, and I see it a lot, particularly on American American Twitter. I look at the people that I used to consider my my comrades in you know because because the 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 big my 
journey down the rabbit hole. I suppose, well, I suppose it began with, with my research into the climate change scam. But the thing that really made me began my journey to full awakeness was the stolen presidential election. Um, and people who I considered my allies in that war uh, are now invested in Trump's return and and they think that that yeah that, that once once we get the right man in office it will everything will get back to normal and and you know the, <laughs> and it ain't it ain't so it ain't no. so and it's in 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 this it's the same in in the uk that we're talking about a class of people who are I mean, the number of, of politicians who are involved in things like child sex is is shocking, I think. I mean, if, if ever it were revealed, some, some people have lost their lives for this. You know, Je- Jeffrey Dickens, MP, who had a dossier on all, all the MPs who were involved in in child sex abuse and probably, probably ritual satanic abuse when it, when it comes down to it. Jeffrey Dickens was around, I think, in the in the 80s, he was talking about this stuff. So we're talking about a system of entrenched corruption. And it just doesn't it doesn't go back just to the 80s or even the 70s. You you look at the you look at the 1930s, you know, you look at look at. I'm very skeptical, for example, about Winston Churchill. I don't think he's he he's the, the the man that is presented to us as a national hero. I think was nothing of the kind. I think he I think he was probably demonically possessed. I think that I think that he, you know he's a thirty third degree Freemason. He was a druid. <laughs> these these are not these are not good Christian people. No, they're 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 working for the other side. By the way. I'm I'm presuming you're 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 with me on on the spiritual nature of this of this. Oh war, yes, but... yes, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I mean, it is it is a spiritual war. It's it's good versus evil at the most primal level, for, for unquestionably now. And 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 when I look at you know again, in, even in the particularities of my own context and my own political, to look at the demeanor of politicians, you know, I mean, I, I, I. I, I'm not happy simply to state that it's a spiritual war and leave that as a kind of an abstraction. I'm somewhat fixated with the idea of trying to tra- translate that into the material, if you know what I mean. That in other words, well, what does it actually mean when we talk about evil personified? Well, to me, that it's about lies, fundamentally. It's about the yeah. lie, because if we had the truth, then good people could expose all this and bring these people to justice. Isn't that true? I mean, fundamentally, it's about the lie. And then when you actually look at the demeanor of politicians now, you realize that actually that the most fundamental change in the, as it were, the weather of politics in the last four years has been the amount and the nature of the lying that is taking place. That is absolutely industrial. And that's yeah. clearly being coached by very skilled, malevolent people. I mean, I saw a clip the other night. There's a guy here, a very good young journalist called Ben Scallon. He works for an, op- an operation called Gripped.ie, which is supposedly an alternative media 
thing. It's not particularly good for other reasons, but he's another excellent journalist. And he has really perfected this thing now of doing the, the doorstep at the press conference, you know, and getting the politicians. And there's, there's, they really absolutely loathe them, even though they're, they're coaches. You can tell that they're being told to call him Ben, you know, say, Ben, yes, thank you for the question, Ben, you know, even though they absolutely want to strangle him, you know, because he's absolutely brilliant. He just asked a question. And when they waffle on, he, he waits for them. He doesn't interrupt them very often. Sometimes he does. But generally, he just said, and this is, yes, Minister, but you didn't answer my question, which was. Now, there was a very interesting explanation, uh, example the other day where he asked the Minister for Education, a woman, about a proposal in a draft legislation about education, which, which will be teaching young uh, boys, uh, Irish boys, quite Christian boys, as it were, uh, that they have privilege. And he was asking, is this, like, in what sense do Irish boys need to know and why, in what sense will they be told that they are privileged? And she started to waffle, oh, well, the purpose of this is to make everybody kind to each other and be aware of each other's weaknesses and strengths and blah. He said, but that's not what it says in the leg draft legislation. She said, it says specifically white Irish Christian, etc., male, male, actually. And Again, she waffled, well, I was a teacher for you know, 25 years myself, and I know, blah, blah. He said, no, no, I, I, that's not the point, Minister. You know, the question is in the draft legislation. And then she said, well, it's only a draft, you know. But you see, people might think, well, that's very funny in a way. And we're smiling and laughing at the absurdity because we know we've seen this. But, you know, you've got to ask yourself, well, what is this, James? This is lying. It's not just evasion. Like evasion is lying. What is lying? Lying is any mechanism which conveys the wrong impression or seeks to do so. These people, they don't speak, the, they, they have these techniques which we kind of find amusing in a way uh, that they're kind of avoiding and evading. No, 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 they're liars. And the lie is at the core of this evil. Because as I said again, you know, if we had a straight press, an honest press, uh, and they exposed the lies, the lies would stop and the truth would emerge and we would arrest these people and put them in jail where they belong. You see, that's, and so in a sense, then when we say it's a spiritual war, I'd like to translate into those kind of tableaus, you know, that it, it's something that that's an example of the spiritual war in action in the material. This is how yes. it manifests. It's not just an abstraction of, you know, a religious idea or, a, you know, it is, of course, all that. But but this is the manifestation of it in this dimension. And we need to start recognizing that when we see it. It's very interesting you, you say that because my journey to Christianity has been as much as anything else an intellectual one. That that there are a lot of a lot of, a lot of Christians you, you encounter who are who are just kind of I call them trust the plan Christians. They they you know, they, they don't want to think too much. They just they just feel they 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 felt their way into Christianity and they just kind of believe it for emotional reasons or whatever. But I think. I, th I mean, I think far too much. And I think if there were not an intellectual case for Christianity, it wouldn't really appeal to me. Uh, I wouldn't find it so persuasive. And 
One of the things that happens when you become a, a sort of open Christian is that people say, well, yeah, hang on a second. You, you do realize, of course, that Christianity is just another trap. It's just a thing that they invented in order to weaken you, to make you all, all passive and so on. And actually, the truth about the world is this, that some people sort of prefer a sort of Gnostic view of the world. And, and, and a lot of, lot of, as you know, a lot of the great, great thinkers have been Gnostics, the people who founded the Royal Society, the Francis Bacon, and 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 so on. You think, well, if the cleverest people in the world were Gnostics, maybe you know, what does that say about Christianity? Um, but then I think, what is what what is God? How do how how can we intuit that God exists? Uh, and, and, and C.S. Lewis wrote about this in, in, in his lectures, Mere, Mere Christianity, um, that, that we all have an inbuilt moral compass. We just do. We know when we tell a lie, we feel uncomfortable telling a lie. It just, just it, it goes against our nature. We know instinctively that lies are not things we like to do, number one. So lying is something we know we know to be bad. The second thing, what are we drawn towards? What things do we find attractive? What things make us happy? What things make us feel good? I would argue that we are attracted to the things that are beautiful, things that are honest. Now, that seems to me to be sort of intellectual proof that we have ultimately a benign creator uh, who, who intended us to seek the truth, to seek, to seek out, 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 out beauty. And you look at the alternatives to that, for example, the, the Gnostics and the Illuminati and their, and their, and their sort of Babylonian um, mystery religions and stuff. And their religion, their version of, of the world is rooted in secrecy and mendacity yes. now i'm thinking okay maybe i've maybe i've backed the wrong cause maybe maybe there really is a demiurge maybe there is this 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 maybe the person who created this world is actually evil or or or, or whatever maybe maybe actually telling lies and being secretive is the way forward but that to me is a counsel of despair i'm i'm going to take a gamble Yes. I'm going to take a gamble based on my intu intuition and my intellectual understanding that actually truth and beauty should be our watchwords and that these are manifestations of the divine. Therefore, I think I'm on, on the right team. And people yes. who engage in lies are de facto on the wrong side. Well, exactly. And, and you think, our, again, our, our former profession is now its business. It has shifted its, its trade from the construction of images of truth, versions of the truth, yeah. into basically pseudo-realities. Yes. It's building stage sets in front of people's eyes every day, which are completely bogus and fictional, and which convince them that they're real. And the commentary around these things convince people. And that's lying again. That's lying. They are, I call them journal liars now. I don't call them journalists, you know, and I call the media. I was looking for a long time for a, a, a phrase, you know, because I don't like the MSM or the legacy media. I don't know what that means. 
So I came up with this phrase, which I call now the set-aside media. Now, set-aside was a scheme which the EU came up with about 30 years ago for farmers to, to, to disable their fields in order to qualify for grants. So in other words, they weren't in use. And they, to do that, they had to spray the fields with poisonous chemicals in order yeah. that the satellites overhead could see that they were sufficiently yellow and therefore the farmer was entitled to his grant, you know? That's what journalism has become. They've actually, the media has basically set aside the profession of journalism, the truth-telling function of journalism, and replaced it with the construction of pseudo-realities in front of people's faces. But to go back to the religious thing, and this is a very, I think, see, I've never, I've done an awful lot of, of writing about this, these things. And and I find that most people who kind of half hear or hear second version have a very half-baked or quarter-baked or eighth-baked notion of what I'm saying. Because I don't ever go into kind of what you might call the, the, the relig- ritualistic or even the practice elements of religion. They're, for me, private. By, very often I'm talking about the public manifestation of religion in thought, in, in public discussion, in public understandings, in culture. And you might even in that context even throw into realms of like mythology, the mythological basis of a society, for example, like is, is something that I would be quite comfortable with in talking about a religious context, not to kind of, because the true meaning of myth is truer than true. You see, so now I, I've been writing about this stuff and, and it seems to me that, that, our whole, I, I found huge hostility towards me on that account. And I often felt that people would be much, more accommodating of me if I had been simply a crawl thumper. You know, they don't want you talking in this way. They didn't want you talking in this way about faith, about religion, about Christianity, because it is precisely, it is reasonable. I was recently, really, I wrote a review recently of a book by David Baddiel, the comedian, the British comedian. It's called The God Desire. And it's a very interesting book because it's like quite different to the neo-atheist books that we had 10 or 15, 20 years ago. Because he's a, he's an atheist who wishes God existed. That's his whole thing, that he has a desire for God, but he can't be convinced that God exists. And he kind of talks about nothingness. And they, they, I find out these guys. And I said to them, I, I, what I put in the review was this, that if I met David, David Badiel, by way of, of, just maybe opening up his consciousness to the possibility that he's wrong about everything. What I would say to him was this. Now, I've discovered that he, he and I, we share a birthday. He's much younger than I am, about nine or ten years. But we were both born on the 28th of May. And I happened to find out a few years ago, by accident, that I was actually conceived on my father's 50th birthday. Now, my mother didn't tell me this. My father is dead. My mother's now dead. But there's no way I would have asked them. But the way I found it out, James, was, you know those cards you get I was I was reflecting on the idea about when my daughter was born, trying to work out how much older than her I was as compared to how much older than me my father was and that kind of thing. And so I was fascinated and, and, and I was sort of thinking, and I said, oh God, he, uh, you know, and once it occurred to me, God, I must have been conceived sometime around September um, 1954, right? And then I forgot one of the, somebody gave me a present of me, all those cards you got, your birthday, your day of your birthday, and it tells you the headlines on the papers and the number one record. And then underneath there was this line, you were most probably conceived on the third, the 4th of September, 1954. I thought, wow, that's my father's 50th birthday. So I thought, oh, wow, was I an act of, of commiseration or consolation or what, what was the, oh, what was the nature of this, you know, uh, 
event, which we won't dwell on further. Uh, but David, so if I was met David, David Badiel in, in, a, in a railway cafeteria on our journey across this dimension, I would say to him, you know, go back. Why not try this? Go back to the date of your birth, the fourth of uh, the date of your conception is the fourth of September. I forget it's, it's sixty three or something like that. Now go back one day before to the third of September that year, in which there is nothing of you, according to your hypothesis, and indeed maybe according to mine. But there's nothing of you. But let's just say that you're in that moment, and and you I can talk to you. And we can discuss this. And somehow you have the consciousness, but you don't have anything else. And you have uh, capacity to understand reality. And I, to the extent that I can ask you questions. And I ask you, well, David, on the 3rd of September, 1963, the day before your conception, while you were still not even a twinkle in your father's eye, what do you think is possible? And that David Baddy, of whatever form he would have taken uh, of not something or nothingness, would have had to say, well, nothing. Nothing's possible. Nothing's possible. And I said, here you are now in the middle of everything. You know, everything. The Atlantic, the mountains, the sky, James Delingpole, John Morris. And, and all you can talk about is nothingness. How is this rational? Please tell me. You come from nothing into something, and now you think that nothing is the default state of existence. But you don't even know whether you were in nothingness because you can't remember. So the whole basis of atheism is completely kaput if you think begin to, to reason it. And if we were a permitted, James, this is why they, they, they ridicule this kind, any kind of discussion like this. And indeed, the churches don't encourage it either. But I believe that in the modern world, if you were able to have these kind of discussions, on a daily basis in mass media, I mean, that day is gone now, it's over, it's, forget it. But if we had, we could have changed the whole dynamic of these discussions. I remember I was in a debate once with, with Christopher Hitchens, you know, when his book came out, God is Not Great, in Dublin. And it wasn't a very pleasant experience, i got to tell you, but because uh, he was very taciturn and grumpy and, and very hostile in, in a way that was completely gratuitous, you know. But in the end, well, was, was this before before the debate or in the debate? Before, during, and after. Uh, you know, like I, we had a dinner the night before for some of the speakers or whatever, and and he was kind of just down the table from me, a couple of spaces on the far side, and he was talking away to a friend of mine who was sitting beside me, and he just completely blanked to me, you know, and and the following day he was just, but in the end he 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 he. He said, well, I, I don't know what kind of religion you belong to, he said. This is the very end, uh, uh, because it's not like anything I've ever seen. And I said, well, Christopher, you know, the problem is you spent three years in your little den, you know, uh, imagining, fantasizing about all kinds of fanatics and fundamentalists, and now you've come out, you can't find any. It's not like that. And and that's the real truth, you know. Like, there was another atheist, and I talked about this in the review as well, that I knew, Peter Atkin, he was in, I think, Cambridge. And he used to come over to Ireland and we used to debate. But he was a really nice man. And we were, like, in the debate, he wasn't nice. Like, we were kicking lumps out of each other, right? But afterwards, we would sit down and have a conversation about the Eurovision or something, you know? And he was a very nice, likable man. And I said to him one evening that one of the debates, I said on the way across the campus in UCC in Cork, I said, you know, Peter, uh, of the two of us, I'm the only one who has any chance of being vindicated. 
And he says, what do you mean? Well, I says, I says, if, if, if I'm right, if you're right, I says, neither of us will ever know. If I'm right, we'll both know. And you know what he said, James? He said, it's much worse than that, John. He says, because if you're right, I'm going to be very happy. So, you know, this is the, the concession of the desire. And I, I have on the school of thought that believes that the desire itself is a way of, is, is a measure of the appetite, the need for, of the space, the God-shaped hole by that cliche, right? Uh, and there was a father, a priest in Italy, a father, a great father, Giussani, who used, came up with this beautiful analogy for this kind of thing. He said, imagine a boy who is kidnapped just after birth by animals, by, by animals, and lives on a desert island, but is looked after by these animals all through his childhood, and he's reared by these animals. And then when he gets to the age of 80, 20, 12 or 13, he starts suddenly having these desires for something that he cannot see. His body is changing and he feels things. And he, he, he has something for which there is no correspondence on the island, which is a woman. But he becomes convinced that woman, the woman must exist because the desire is so strong. And, and, and yet we are not permitted to apply this analogy to the idea of God in our culture, which imposes this completely false reality on us, which is based not on, on reality in its totality and its mystery, but it is based on the prefabricated units that we move through in modern society which are really just constructs which we have built to keep us warm, to keep us sheltered, but which also have the effect of shutting out the mystery of reality. And that's what our culture has become. It has become a culture in which mystery has been abolished. But the real problem with that, James, is not even that. The real problem is that you can shut out all the mystery from outside and you maybe can survive 75 years or 80 years on this and claim that you don't believe in anything, but you can't close down the mystery inside because that's always there. What do you think happens after we've had our, our, our three score years and 10 or, or well, four score years? If we like, I, I actually, I have no way of knowing James. And, and, and this is interesting because you see, one of the things that I find problematic about Christianity in a sense, and you know, I hesitate to say these things because people misunderstand, but you know, I, I like to think of Jesus as a guy you could say anything to, right? And he could say anything back to you, right? Yeah. And that you could have any kind of conversation with him and he wouldn't lose the rag, right? You know, so I kind of like to think, well, uh, you see, the big problem I have with that, uh, Christianity in the in our culture has become highly anthropomorphized, and it has become fixed in the period of the New Testament. So that when we think of heaven, we think of Jesus walking around in this with long hair and a beard and 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 this red toga thing or whatever it is cloak thing, right? And and. This kind of throws us, and we have this kind of, I think, crude idea. This is somewhat a caricature, but it's like that when we die, to answer your question, by our cultural kind of norms, we would think, well, what happens? Well, I shoot up to over the clouds. I end up in heaven, and there's the table is set for, 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 for dinner, 
and God is comes in. He sits at the top of the table, and Jesus and Mary and Joseph is there too. And I sit, and they say, "Oh, John, yeah, yeah, sit down, you know." And off we go, and we have a chat about how things are in the old world, and 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 that's kind of, I think, where how limited the imagination of our culture generally is, and that's what it's rejecting because it's no longer plausible. Whereas, you know, Pope Benedict in 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 one of those interviews with Peter Seewald. And these things get very little. He talked about this interesting. He says that we have to forget these spatial notions and temporal notions of heaven. You know, it's not like that. He says it's 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 a completely different dimension. And and I I you see we as human beings you know we we think dramatically or even melodramatically about things and we put each other into it and we see things characters and that's the way we envisage the world and we kind of do that through religion as well and it's no harm so long as you remember that it's purely a kind of um some kind of manifestation visual manifestation of something that is beyond pictures beyond images beyond words and it's the old, i think c.s lewis or it's been said i think saint Augustine said it, that if you if you if you describe god then you're wrong you know, <laughs> yeah 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 I, here's here's the thing that puzzles me I, because I, like you i don't know everything amazingly our souls are immortal yes and indestructible right what what were they doing before we were born Be- before they before they inhabited our sort of mortal shell our flesh well, you see, again, this is, gets into a very ropey theological territory now because you kind of, in answering that, have to leave open the possibility that the doctrines of the church may be not entirely right about everything. The Council of Nicaea, yeah. which apparently was, was, was where it was decided that, that the notion of, of um, reincarnation, for example, was verboten. Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, uh, Again, one has to be careful uh, because I think, you know, you know, when there's a famous quotation uh, and you mentioned the one of the people before Churchill, I mean, there's a kind of a certain, there's a sort of idea that when anybody quotes something which is really clever from long ago, it's either down to Churchill or George Bernard Shaw, right? Yeah. uh, it's probably neither. Or, or Mark Twain. Both of whom are horrible creeps, right? <laughs> Both of whom are horrible creeps, as I say. But the, 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 the saying is, the, the, the phrase I'm thinking of is that the mind, the human mind is of such a complex instrument that it exceeds its own capacity to understand itself. Which is quite a, an involuted kind of, uh, you know, you know, you're not sure where it finishes it up. Is it good or bad or smart or not smart? You know, but it's that complexity, and and you see the problem is that we 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 kind of think in very literal, um, substantialist kind of concepts when we try to talk about these ideas, you know, about religion and so on. And but when you actually the evidence that that, for example, I mean, and 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 this may be. That, that saying may debunk what I'm about to say, but I mean, I've come across situations. I remember once being involved in a session run by a, a very, very eccentric uh, psychi- psychiatrist in Dublin who was used to bring in artistic-minded people and put them into this process of uh, halotrophic breathing and, and ketamine injections and so on, and they would be going to an altered reality. The K-hole. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 they would start re-entering past lives, you know, and and dying in a past life. You know, I remember I, I was I did this, and there was a guy in next bed, and he was, I I was telling jokes or something from one floor to cuckoo's nest. Or I was saying all these lines that I remember for some reason because the whole thing reminded me of that. And he was just, you know, he suddenly jumped up in bed. He says, "Can you keep quiet? I'm trying to die over here." You know, and 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 you know that now is that evidence? Well, it is. Whether it's definitive or conclusive, I don't know. But what I'm saying is that you know, there's much more in the world than than we've been led to believe. And and you got to if you if we where we came in, you know, talking about how unknowable the world is. Well, isn't it possible that there were interferences with? church doctrines along the way as well and so on and that some of well, these- this is the thing this is this is this is one of the things that that gets uh, one of the other problems when you become a christian is that all the other christians in the world start telling you what is correct doctrine so the the, the catholics you know tell you that theirs is the mother church and discount the rest and and the the calvinists tell you no we've, we're predestined and the orthodox tell you this and and that and you're thinking, well, hang on, you, you can't all be right. Yeah. You're, you, 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 you know, you, you've all got elements of the understanding of, of the nature of, of God and Christianity, but maybe you, maybe you can't afford to be too dogmatic. And, but on the subject of, of Scripture, the sort of, what I understand is the sort of standard line is that the Scriptures that we have now must be what God wants, because if God didn't want them, they wouldn't have happened. Therefore, they are what God wants, and therefore they they can be taken seriously. And I'm, for me, that slightly trusts the plan. You know, I'm, I mean, I've, I've so and 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 of course, also James, there's a difference between taking something seriously and taking it literally. Yeah. You know, like I don't take Genesis literally. I don't think God made the world in seven in six days and then had a rest on the seventh that's a poetic construction in my view i don't care if this is heretical or not and but and you it, do think you you do think he made the world don't you yes of yeah. course yeah. yes but i don't think but I, I you know i don't think necessarily that that we have to kind of you know like and i've i've got into arguments with this about and people are sort of you know telling me about the temporal nature but we like seven days then was probably like the equivalent of about 500 years now who knows like time is bending and shaping and, and, and changing shape and so on so we you know there's all kinds of things that are variations that come into these pictures and to my mind, the, the 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 Bible is it's it's a piece of literature as much as it is uh, a holy book and a fantastic piece of literature. Wow! Yeah. I tell yeah. you what, John, I one of the greatest pleasures of becoming a Christian. I love reading the Bible every night. It's it, you know I don't I don't go oh I suppose God wants me to read a bit more Bible tonight. I'm thinking yeah I take it with me on holiday. I read the Bible before I read you know other stuff like i'm reading at the moment i'm reading somerset morms um of human bondage and 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 and, and trying to finish finish uh, uh gogol's dead souls and, and 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 stuff but first of all i read the bible and the psalms and it's just great but like you 
and I'm sorry, Christians, you you have to forgive me on this one. I don't, I don't think because it's in the Bible, therefore I must take every word literally, because I know that there are generations of scholars who've, who've microanalyzed every passage in the in the bible and we know that there are differences in the translations from 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 the hebrew or, or from the from the septuagint and 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 so even even the translations are contested and yeah. maybe i'm maybe i'm being too simple here it is enough for me to know that god created the world i don't need to believe the detail about he did it in six days yeah. because maybe the definition of the bloke who wrote genesis Maybe a day was, you know, maybe time. Exp- I, I don't know, but yeah. I, I feel I don't need to, to, to focus on that. Pl- to, to, does that make me a bad Christian? I don't think so. Well, you see, I don't think it does, James, at all. It makes you, in my view, it makes you a good anything because you're curious. Yeah. You know, I, I actually, I'm a big fan of Doubting Thomas, who is a kind of a figure in Christianity who is kind of put somewhere next to Judas as in, in the, the naughty corner, you know? Uh, and that's not real at all. That's, there's no basis for that. Because Jesus did not condemn Thomas for doubting him. He simply said, well, blessed are those who, you, uh, blessed are you because you believe. But now, and blessed are those who, be, who know, uh, uh, who believe without, without seeing. But the point is that Thomas's action of verification allows those of us who weren't there to see to have an extra, an extra witness in the verification process. And I, I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I don't see why we have to behave like children in talking about these things and say, oh, no, 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 no. Amen. You know? Definitely. That's, that's, that, that you know, I, you're, you're very good at sort of um, uh, raising these, these, these serious problems that I, I object quite violently Mm. To people telling me that I must, I know, I know Jesus had said that in a way that, you know, you must be like a child, you know, but at the same time, I balk at this detail that Christians who tell me that, that I should be like that. I, you know, I am much more with doubting Thomas. Well, you see, I think what Jesus meant there was about wonder that he, he, you have to have that disposition of wonder before reality. In order to understand, there's a saying, I don't know who said this first, but it's a beautiful phrase, only wonder knows. In other words, that only when you are awestruck are you completely in connection with the world and its majesty. And I think that's real. You know? Also, I think, John, I mean, I've, 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 I've said, it, it sounds arrogant, but I don't mean it to be arrogant. I, I, I feel it, it's, a, it's a privilege, it's a gift rather than anything. I think I've been, I believe I've been given a mission by God to, to evangelize. And I think that through this podcast and, and elsewhere, I reach the kind of people who would otherwise be not reached. I reach the kind of people who ask the questions that I am asking. Mm. And if I were more, were more, this is the deal. This is what, what, what the Bible says. I think I would alienate people, and that's not my job. My job is to bring them on board, and, and with, with doubts and all. You see, I think that when we talk about different religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, uh, Islam, and then agnosticism and atheism, these are just labels in a certain sense for which we 
we we pen to ourselves on the basis of a of a kind of a, a very rudimentary and contingent hypothesis, working hypothesis of reality, which you know in in reality we we in, given that we said already that if you describe God you can't know what you're talking about, which is true. Uh, like that we're actually trying to describe something that is unknowable. And yet that we have a desire for, which you have, we have a vested interest in, and which we also have to find a way of comprehending within ourselves, within our hearts, perhaps more than our heads, as we move through this reality. But the problem is that, it, that you see all of this kind of finicky kind of literalization and, and dogmatization of the subject causes people like, I mean, I find that as well with people who, who you know, challenge me if I say something uh, it was, which is slightly, you know, speculative or you say, oh, that's not the, that's not what the church teaches. But to be honest with you, if that's the case, I don't care. <laughs> I'm so with you. I don't care. I'm, I'm so totally with you. You see, because, like, because like, you know, Jesus, get, God give us these minds. And he asked us to pursue reality in, in, in its in its pure nature, and 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 that's he doesn't he doesn't give you a pat on the head in my view unless he's a very, you know, old fashioned you know not very godlike figure for you know doing what you were told in there under every heading. That's not what it's about. He he wants you to use your heart and your head to contemplate and to find some way, and of course to read and inform yourself and learn. Uh, but, I mean, I find, you know, that there's a dreadful reductionism about an awful lot of Christian Christianity as it is practiced, the residual elements of it now within our culture, which is like almost like, I find it, for example, in relation to this COVID thing, you know, where you might be speak at meetings and so on. And and there'll be always a deeply religious person who you'll talk for two and a half hours about what we need to do and how we can do it and what. And there'll be somebody who says, oh, we'll just leave it to Jesus, say the rosary and just you know, Jesus will look after everything else. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. When I was, I, I, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I learned, I, I had been an agnostic for, for, I wrote a book called Laughs Agnostic about this. I'd been an agnostic for about 20 years, but I went back and I discovered again, the meaning of religious, uh, uh, religious kind of ideas as they played out in your life. And you know, because AA has this concept of God as we understand it, which is kind of an advice they use to avoid the prejudices that people have built up about God yeah. under headings, right? And they say, and the important thing, there's a very interesting book which is written about AA in the early stages, uh, kind of a biography of AA by a German called Gernish Schmidt was his name, something like that. And the book is called Not God. And the point of the Not God title is to remind us and that he is reminding us that whatever about our belief in God, far uh, more important than that in the first instance is to become convinced that you are not God. In other words, that there is somebody greater than you. There is something greater than you. That's the first step. And, and I think that that's really, you know, this idea that there is this tyrannical guy up in the clouds who is watching everything we do and, and is going to punish us. Uh, and we we won't be able to explain ourselves to him. Uh, I don't buy that. I, you know, I kind of almost be, would be at the point of well, if that's the deal, then sorry, I'm off the table. You know, like I I, I wouldn't want that. And and, and uh, I'm sorry if that offends people, but that's what, the way I am. And and 
And I think what you say is so true because this form of discussion, in my view, has the potential, potential to be far more interesting and attractive to people who have lost their faith than all of this kind of prating and, and rule-based dogmatism that is just basically wanting them to go back to be children in the classroom and be told what to believe. Um, what I was dying to, dying to say to you was, of course, awake people are particularly disposed towards our kind of thinking. And I think, I think the people I'm, I'm evangelizing are mainly the awake. Mm. And awake people are deeply skeptical about everything. Yes. And I think a lot of awake people saying, well, okay, they lied to us about 9-11. They lied to us about Shakespeare. They lied to us about, you know, no matter how far you go back in history, they were lying to us all the time. So is there some rule whereby everything we were taught about the world is a lie, but everything in the Old Testament and the New Testament and that the church says is true? I think yeah. a lot of awake people have a problem with that. So I understand why people are skeptical about things like translations, doctrine, etc. We have to yeah. address that, don't we? We do, yeah. We certainly do. Um, I, I think the big problem is literalism. I mean, if you, if you think about it, first of all, like look at the performance of the church during the COVID thing, the Catholic Church, or indeed the other churches. Dreadful. Yeah. Dreadful. They closed their churches down. I mean, in the Black Death, what did the priests do? They went out seeking down, seeking the faithful so they could, could baptize them and give them the last rites in case yeah. they would die and go to hell. Now, the church locked the church doors up and walks away and leave it there for, for months on end. Yeah. And, and, and now they're even yet, some of them are up with the, 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 what do you call the hand, the hand sanitizer on the altar, you know, or gloves and all this stuff like, I mean, how is people, how are we to believe that they believe if they behave like this, given that Jesus talked about kissing the lepers and so on? Yeah. You know, like, where does it, how does this fit together? It doesn't. Now, that's the thing. Like, but here's the thing, uh, I think, James. There was an Irish writer called John McGarren. He's a novelist. He was from down near where I was from myself in the west of Ireland. And I remember once reading an interview with him where he was talking about uh, religion. And he, was, he turned into an atheist later. All right. And he actually said this strange sentence. He said, the church was my first book. At the time, I didn't. I, what does he mean by that? It's only years later that I began to think about my own life and write about my own life and realize that actually I was writing about a play, a thing. It's almost, isn't it? it is almost literally like that religion in that context was like going into a book, you know, a great book that you want to read forever, that you don't ever want to end. And it was like that everything in the world was being presented to you in different ways and pers different perspectives. And what was actually happening, that you were being asked to kind of reconcile different versions of things, different accounts, the four different Gospels, which were in some instances quite different, hmm. and reconcile those and not see contradiction. And in fact, moreover, J James, not just not see contradictions, but actually see the contradictions as evidence, because that's the way it would be if four independent witnesses saw something, they would give slightly different accounts. Yeah. You know, so all of this, that, that, so I, I, I have always felt about this, that, you know, we're, we're being given, the church is, is a, it was a different place. I mean, 
like we had a pretty poor house and so on and you know i couldn't bring my friends in and you know we didn't have carpets or a bathroom or stuff like that but there was one house in the town i could just walk into anytime i wanted and that was the church and it was beautiful you know i could stay as long as i liked and i could go in with my friends and we would sit there quietly or we'd whisper to each other like this was a whole a parallel reality within the reality that we were living and i think this is something that people you know forget you know as they go into move into that kind of prefabricated reality that we call reality uh, which is only a partial reality <clears throat> that all of those mysterious things that we learn very beautiful i i I was you an experience I had, James, uh, in, in, cause I, I mean, I, people will say this guy, this is, you can see why Christopher Hitchens said, I don't know what kind of religion you belong to because it doesn't sound like I said, but why not? You know, but I remember a few years ago, I, I got a very bad attack about five years ago where I got a viral attack, uh, dormant chicken pox, which basically wiped out half my face. I had paralysis on my left side of my face. I've lost the hearing this year. So it's not going to come back. Uh, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> That's not a very... <laughs> that shows my lack of faith, James. You, but you, I you haven't prayed to the Virgin. Come on, yeah, John. Really. Put yourself together. No, you know, and it's, maybe that is true. Maybe that is true, James. I haven't found the code. I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't make a joke about that. You Ask know? her intercession, maybe, yeah. Maybe one day, you know, who knows? But but my, my good feeling is I'm going to be deaf in this year. Okay. Okay, but, uh, and I was walking in a stick, I'd lost my balance, and you know, this is about a few months after, and we were over, myself and my wife were over in, in, in Oxford at a conference uh, in a university there, and on the Sunday we were down to the oratory, and there was a Latin mass there, I think it was 11 o'clock, very beautiful mass, like, I mean, and I used to serve this mass as a child, I loved it, it was absolutely astonishing, like, you know, the, the, the mass in Latin, the music, the songs, the Dies Irae, and uh, Agnes Day, all these hymns. I used to sing them. I mean, when we, when people died, when they died, the high mass, we would sing, you know. And and I went to this into this church, and I was standing there, and it all erupted at the beginning with the music, and the, then about like sixty priests and altar boys and come out of the sacristy and start parade trooping down the middle of the church, you know, and they've all got crosses and uh, tura bells and, and the guy in the front had a big bucket of, I forget what it was called, uh, for holy water, you know, and this thing, and he was lashing it about the place, you know, and it was like theatre, of, of course, but, yeah. but something deeper, obviously. And when it came to me, James, just in front of me, he lashed out with the thing, with the, 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 the holy water, and a flood of it caught me right there on the paralyzed part of my face. And I burst into tears. I literally wept for 10 minutes nearly. And my wife beside me didn't know what, what's, what's wrong, what's wrong. I couldn't explain it, but afterwards I realized I'm home. I've come home. You know, that this was the meaning of it. That, that the beauty, you talked about beauty. This is the great loss from the changing into the vernacular. And I knew this at the time as a boy. How can they do this? It's boring, it's terrible, into English. Who needs the mass in English? Latin is so beautiful. I mean, it was just poetry. I didn't know what it was. What they were, but the, when you heard a priest who knew how to say it, who knew it all properly. Oh man, it would just, like, it, it caused your soul to explode. 
And I felt all this again. And I realized this is not nostalgia. This is something much deeper. This desire, the thing that Badiel talks about, you know, and I wish I could talk to him. I think you should talk to him, James, you know, because he's a very interesting character, you know, and a very, I think a very likable guy. I liked his comedy. He was funny, you know, yeah, uh, Jewish guy. Um, you know, so interesting. But what I'm saying here is that this part of ourselves is there all the time. It's been there since we were children. That's what Jesus is talking about. Because when you look at the world and you say, you don't say, so what, as a child? You say, oh boy, oh boy, oh wow. I have a great, I have a grand, step-grandson called, I call him Kojak. I won't say his real name, but I call him Kojak because he had no hair when I met him first. And uh, people don't get that joke. Do you get that joke? No, you don't no. know who Kojak is. You see, you're too young, James. Kojak was a cop in the cop. Oh, you're sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Sorry, I didn't hear you properly. Yeah, yeah, Kojak. Yeah, yeah of course. I, yeah, he he sucked a lollipop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but Kojak, my my step grandson, like he he just runs at the world with his eyes alight at everything and everything you say he wants to know what you mean and and what's that and he picks things up and he looks at them and he he wants and he can like he just figures things out really fast like we were in a house in spain with him there during the summer and there was a, an older guy there and he had loads of t toy guns and uh, kojak wanted to play with them and he said sure yeah but then there was one that kojak actually liked and the guy said no no that one's broken and and kojak just gets it out and he looks at it and he goes like a Lubick clue. And next thing, it's working. You know, like, he's magical. And that's, that's the, the religious dimension. That's the religious yeah. demeanor. Yeah. That's the religious sense. That this is, a, we are in a great place. Look where we are. Yeah. How could we be bored by this? How could we be depressed here? How could we take this for granted? How could we say, so what? Who, how could we say, who cares? That's 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 what they should be inculcating in in the adults of the world, not teaching them what the doctor. Well, yeah, you just reminded me, John. One of I I go riding every week, and my favourite time when I go riding is in the school holidays, where all the little girls are out on their ponies on on, on the ride, and it's not because I'm a I'm a pedo, <laughs> it's because I just love chatting to the kids yeah because i feel like i found my level i can talk to people who are totally open-minded so when you talk to grown-ups there's that kind of everyone's everyone's sort of formed in their views and that they think you know they've seen the world they know what they know what's what and they're skeptical about what you said you tell the you chat to these children about things and they're open to the possibility that you might be right, that you're not talking bullshit. So I talk to them about God. I talk to them about all sorts of... I, I talk to them about Madonna being a, a, a Satanist and um, don't... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all sorts. And, and uh, I, I, tell them about, I tell them about the Satanic symbolism in their favourite Disney movies. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I much prefer talking to them than I, than I do the grown-ups yeah. because... Just they have that the thing that Jesus talked about. It's it, it it's great. Yeah, because it it's uh, uh, it, this is interesting because you know I saw an interview with uh, uh, Badiel's former comic partner uh, Skinner. Rob Newman. 
No, Skinner. What's called? Uh, oh, Skinner. Yes. Yeah. What's his first name? I forgot. I can't remember. But he was actually doing Frank. Hmm? Frank Skinner. Yes, he's a very funny guy, and he's a he's a Catholic, very 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 sincere Catholic, very real Catholic, right? Yeah. And he was somebody asked him in an interview, "Well, have you read Badiel's book?" And he says, "No. Why should I?" He says, "You know, you're like what? What a radical idea! I'm an atheist. Oh, that's very brave, isn't it? You know, you know, like like the the interesting people he said like are the people who believe. They're the ones who are taking a risk now, and it's so true. You know, like this uh, this idea has gone from being countercultural to being mainstream of being you know, that's, oh, I'm an atheist. You know, oh, yeah. that's so clever of you. Edgy. It's so edgy being an atheist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, that's it's missing out like ninety nine percent of reality and living in that box. Paul Benedict called it the bunker that we've built for ourselves to live in. And you know, we all know exactly where everything is in the bunker, and we can we could walk around it in the dark in our bare feet. But it's not reality; it's false, and it works up to after a fashion. But reality is out there out in the jungle, out in the desert, you know? I think in a way I was very fortunate in my life, James, because I was born in a very small town. And it's very strange because as, even though in a certain sense the main, the street outside was like any street in any city. You know, there were shops and cars and, and, and lights and, and so on, and signposts and and a, a chipper up the town with a jukebox in it, you know, which was the centre of our existence, lots of for lots of our, our childhood uh and but then out the back door there was kind of a wilderness because all the gardens had run into one you know nobody stopped people had stopped cultivating them years before and we used to play around there and go down the, the river and climb trees and all that kind of stuff and when you're out in the street you're being told what to do and where to go. You're being pointed in certain directions, go this way or that way or this way. You know, the lights to walk, don't walk, all that kind of stuff. Now, we didn't have traffic lights in those days, but the general idea is the same. But go out in the, the back and you're in the wilderness. And there was an island in the middle of the river behind where you could get over with a, a tree. You'd fallen a tree. We'd felled a tree and you could climb across and stay on the island on your own on a summer's day and just lie down in a hollow and stare at the sky. You couldn't possibly do that and not believe that there is something great that we don't know. You know, whereas in the street, you can easily believe that man made everything and man is in total control of reality. So yeah. In that, that having that kind of dichotomy available to me right there in my own house, you know? I think... Our generation was very lucky in that we were blessed with the availability of boredom. Um, that we didn't have we didn't have iPhones and and TikTok to distract us every single second. So there were there were long hours to while away just mm. thinking about about stuff and just yeah. I, I mean, although I obviously wasn't born in in rural Ireland. I, with hindsight, I was similarly blessed in that I remember going up to, when I went up to Oxford, I really resented the fact, I bitterly resented the fact that I had not been born into a landed family with huge estates um, and, and loads of money because I thought, well, that's, that's, the, way to, that's, that, that's the way to be. I mean, obviously, I, I wouldn't mind if that had happened, but I was born in... I was, the, you know, my, my father was was originally from Birmingham, um, father side family, mother side from the Black Country, 
and uh, so I was a kind of nothing. I was sort of sort of halfway between between the kind of the the toffs that I aspired to belong among and sort of ordinary people. But I think that in retrospect, this kind of slightly rootless status um, where I, I didn't quite belong anywhere was actually a blessing. Yes. Yes. No man's land. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah because you, you have both and you have neither. Yeah. So I mean, I, you know, I can play, I can play the toff when I go, when I go fox hunting and, mm. and, I, and I've, I've developed the accent and stuff, but I feel just as at home with, with people from not those, those backgrounds. I just, I just particularly since I became awake, yes. I've become absolutely, I just love my fellow man. Just, you know, I think I, I, I can see, see virtues in every, in everyone different, different ways. It's, yeah, it's great. I, it's been a joy. Well, the last, the last 43 months have shown us something that we didn't realize or hadn't allowed ourselves to think about. It's that what we call education isn't really education, you know, and that the people that are educated are people who have a certain very narrow understanding of one subject, maybe, and a certain strip of that subject, and that's their thing. And out of that, then they have a kind, kind of a comedy of, of expertise with other people that we all agree not to intrude on each other's expertises. Uh, so we don't contradict one another. So when the lawyer says this is the law, the scientist doesn't say, sorry, I disagree with you, and vice versa. But the ordinary guy who has to make and mend the world every day with his hands or her hands, a dressmaker or a carpenter or a plumber or a motor mechanic, he has to figure out how things work from sounds, noises in the engine or, you know, the, you know, the, the, the feel of the, 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 the tires or whatever it is, right? Uh, and the spirit level, as Matthew Crawford, the great Matthew B. Crawford talks about the spirit level, you know, as being the guide, you know, that it has to be level. At the end, it has to be level. When the electrician leaves your house, the lights have to work. Yeah. It's very clear. Whereas when the philosopher leaves your house, nothing works. And it doesn't <laughs> No, no. You know, like, so the point is that, that, you know, there's a very, I think that we, this has been, been the one, the core, again, we go back to that concept of evil because it's evil, you know, this idea that they're pushing their expertise, their singular narrow band of expertise at us. And they're attaching to it a power over us to tell us what we can and cannot do with our own little lives, our precious time. And they're using a small bit of book learning to justify this. And all the other so-called experts are backing them up because they are waiting their turn to do the same thing. That's how they did it. That's how they did it. Whereas most, my father was smarter than the whole lot of them put together. Like he had, he drove a mail car, like, which is a kind of a stagecoach. Uh, but he could he could take an engine apart and put it together again in an afternoon. He could build a door frame or a window. You know, he could build a wall. You know, he he could do all. He could do. You know, he could make a garden. You know, he was like he had a whole lot of disciplines. And out of that, this is the point. It's not because out of that is an understanding of the three dimensional world that is absent from those who have purely book learning. 
that because at a certain point, you know, I'm talking about my 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 um, step grandson, you know, Kojak. Like I was just watch him crawling around on the on the on the floor, and 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 you know, he'd pick things up and he'd look at them, you know, and he'd study and he'd, and he'd smell them and taste them and 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 rattle them, you know, and 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 I, I realized he's actually figuring out this place. It's not just one thing; it's the whole thing. He's doing this to everything, and that's how he's developing these pictures and these sound images of of everything. And that process has to go on. It should rightly go on into your adulthood, but it doesn't anymore. They've arrested it sometime in your mid-teens, maybe, where everything after that becomes purely abstraction. It becomes second or third hand, and you have nothing to compare it with, so you have to learn enough by rote. And that's no good. You know, there's a very interesting, a fellow I know who used to teach uh, speed reading, an old fellow, you know, he's a very smart guy and very funny and so on. But I was talking to him one day about certain, he used to teach politicians and I was talking to him, you know, he would never tell you who they were, but I would say, well, you know, but this guy must be very intelligent, you know, and, and so on. And he says, be careful. Don't confuse intelligence with retention. Yeah. You know, and that's the difference. That you know, like I was, I was struck by that watching a recent interview with with Alexander uh, uh, Wall because like, he was a profoundly intelligent man, you know, and I could see in him that sense of, you know, that that some he had it somehow acquired something as you have as well, James. Uh, that there's something that is still there in the culture. It survives. It's a residue of that old style of presenting people with all kinds of, in a certain sense, irrelevant things. You know, ancient Greece, uh, Latin, you know, all these different things, you know, Yiddish or whatever, you know. And you, you learn these things because they're there and because they have with them a version of the world within them. They contain, attached to them, a version of reality. And by comparing that one to that one to that one in your mind, not consciously, but unconsciously, you form a very complex a view of reality, which allows you to speak to all kinds of things. But now our culture refuses to allow us to speak. I mean, think about during the so-called pandemic that we were forbidden from discussing publicly things that affected intimately our own lives, our health, our futures, unless we had a micro macrobiology de degree or a virology degree or something yeah. nonsense like that. And that those idiots could stand there and tell us because they had these pieces of paper in their earth pockets, they could tell us what we could and could not do with our own lives. But it's not okay. So we can look back at that time with bemused wonderment that ever such a state of affairs could exist. But isn't the even weirder thing that here we are a couple of years on from that period and still all those our former colleagues in the world of journalism are still in denial. They're still, they still will not talk about things like vaccine injury. Yeah. Well, I you find see, that extraordinary. Well, it is in, in, in an absolute sense, extraordinary in that sense, moral sense, which is how I think you mean it, but it's actually not that extraordinary when you think it through at a different, from, from, you know, the beginning, because you've got to remember that these guys are complicit in mass murder and they know it. The, the, the journalists, you mean? Yes, yes. How, but, but, okay, they know it, but how much do they know it? How aware are they? Well, they're, they're sort of subliminally they know, aware. They know it as much as they're permitting themselves to know it. 
It's all there for and and uh, but I, some of them are very skillful at denial, of course. But uh, the the point is that they, the, all of the participants in this, this is this situation. James is completely is unique as far as I know in the entire history of the world, where a crime of this magnitude was committed by so many people, who now are involved in a cover up, uh, in which they are determined to say there was no crime. What do you mean crime? Not only was there no crime, but we're continuing what we were doing before just to prove that there wasn't, what we, there was nothing wrong with it. We're going to kill more people because that proves that we didn't kill anybody in the first place, kind of thing, you know? Yeah. If, you know, and, and, and you see, the journalism thing is really shocking because they, they don't take any responsibility for the, the magnitude of their, their importance and significance in what happened. Because without them and without their corruption, none of it would have been possible at all. It would have been over in a couple of days. Yep. You know, I mean, all you, like you just look at those press conferences, like with all those uh, health boffins and, and czars, you know, and stand on this, t- in this platform and you, like they're just being thrown softball questions by, by, by uh, journalists who used to have integrity. But you see, there's something very, very weird about what's happened to the world and in general. And I find this a lot. Have you noticed this thing, James, whereby you, you talk to certain categories of people and it's like they're in a time warp that, you know, you start to talk to them about, for example, I, I met a guy recently who was a very successful, very major journalist in Ireland, an editor a few years back, you know, a very high profile. And I, you know, I used to get on kind of all right. And I worked for him a lot in in the early days, and and uh, you know, he could be uh, you know psychotic and so on. But I got on okay outside of that most of the time. Uh, so I ran into him, and I'm talking away, and we're talking about you know the state of the country, you know. And he next thing he starts propounding this hypothesis that what's wrong with politics now is that. Uh, we should have a system. The system doesn't work, but we should have a system in which uh, elected politicians never get to be ministers. They just appoint ministers from outside who are experts in their field, and this would solve the whole problem. And he said, "That's the problem. That's not the problem. That's not the problem. What are you talking about?" Yeah. And I said, and he said, well, "What's the problem?" I said, "The problem is the one of the one of the problem major problems is the influence of supranational organisations on domestic politics on 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 the the running of our countries." Uh, well, 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 for example, well, I said the W World Economic Forum is oh, that that has no power. There's no power. They have no power. You know, like complete unreality. Yeah. Uh, and and I, this is a kind of a thing that I notice about a lot of. I'll tell you an even more graphic case, Jibs, which is really not quite in the journalistic, but in the writing field. Very interesting. The Booker shortlist. There's a book on there called Prophet Song by an Irish writer. There are two Irish writers on it. But this guy, uh, Paul Lynch, Prophet Song. And it's made the shortlist. It's one of the six books now, which, and I think he's going to win it. And if it does, I hope it does because of what I'm going to tell you. I first became aware of this book about a couple of months ago. And the blurb that I suffered was really promising because it was like Ireland falls to a dystopian uh, regime taking over a democracy, end of democracy. Oh, he's one of us. Yes. It should yes. be in the nonfiction section. Our, yeah. our Solzhenitsyn has arrived. You know, come on. And, and so then I, I, then I started rooting around before I, I got the book. I sent away from the book immediately. And then I, I, I started rooting around and online I found a little blurb where he had done and he said, talked about when he got the first impulse to write this book. 
And it was in 2018, he says, and the world was kind of coming down to populist nationalists and they were taking oh, yeah. over everywhere in Germany Bastards. and blah, blah, AFD and Poland and blah, blah. And I thought, oh, no. And then I thought, well, come on. That was 2018. He, he's written the book. It was published, I think, in 20, this year. So he must have been writing it in 20, 21, 22, 23. So, you know, what was going on in that period? Was it a nationalist populist uh, uh, dystopia? I don't think so. Well, this guy actually wrote a book according to his initial uh, impulse about a nationalist populist takeover of Ireland. And he must have been writing it while he was looking out his window from his writing desk at members of the police force dragging people by the hair of the head off buses because they weren't wearing masks and and out kicking people out of cafes and and stopping people on 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 the uh, sitting on park benches and asking them why they were sitting down that they had to keep moving and he continued to write this story of a nationalist populist re- revolution in Ireland while the a globalist coup was conducted right outside his window now that to me is astonishing now I'll say this further thing about him that he's a very he's a really no okay I need to qualify this and parse this a little bit because I, I said first of all straight up he's a really good writer but kind James like you know what does that question mean does is it when you say somebody's a good writer do you mean well he can read write really nice sentences and that that's what makes a good writer he can he's a good paragraphist you know uh, yeah that's part of it isn't it. But surely the most important criterion for a writer is the capacity to reflect what the world is like or something like that. Would you say it's something, have you a better definition of that? You'd you'd hope. You'd hope. And so so I was kind of, I mean, this book is really well written and it has some very good things in it. But at its core, it's again a lie. It's a lie. Yeah. Because... While he was writing it, the very thing he wanted to write about was happening, but just not the way he had thought it was going to. Yeah. And he ignored that and continued with his initial plan. Now, the song is probably, watch it, I believe it will win. And I believe that in a certain sense, that will vindicate his decision, in a certain sense, to write it the way he did. Because he would have maybe intuited that, look, if I write the truth about this, I'm not going to be getting shortlist. I was thinking, you're, you're right, it probably will win for that reason that we talked about earlier, where all the journalists know that they were complicit in the greatest crime that has ever been committed, yeah. the, the biggest, because you know, of the scale of it. They all know they were complicit, so what they're looking for is reasons to explain to themselves that actually they aren't culpable because there are other problems in the world much worse. And here's an imaginary problem. Yes. Off the hook, guys. Have you having, are you having this experience intermittently or, or even continuously, whereby somebody who was once a close friend in, in the journalistic profession life, right, with whom you drank, laughed, you know, hung out, he slept on your couch, you slept on his couch uh, after a session on the on the town and now you read something 
there's a headline, you hear a headline and, and, and you say, oh, he's written an article. Oh, that sounds interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll read that. And then you think, oh, my God. This guy has completely lost all of his brain cells. He has given away everything he ever was. He was a cynic. He was a skeptic. He was, uh, you know, a, you know, funny. He had a disrespect, a healthy disrespect for authority. And now it's all gone. And what's he doing? He's attacking the far right, which doesn't exist. I've had to... I, I now try and avoid placing myself in situations where I'm going to meet anybody from my journalistic past because um, I don't really like people think that oh, James Stellingpole contrarian he loves a good fight actually I really don't I don't no. like confrontation I want us all to get along and it would be too painful for me yeah. to have to because I, look, I know and I'm right I've got the moral high ground over these people. I mean, I mean, I you know, um, it. I'm I'm on this huge mountain, and they are just these pygmies at the bottom, morally. Yes. And I find it uncomfortable to be in that position. It's a bit like I, I, I occasionally cite this example. Have you ever seen Pacific, the, uh, the 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 Pacific version of Band of Brothers? No. There's a guy. There's a, it's Guadalcanal, and there's a there's a marine man, uh, manning the foxhole with 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 a, a bloke next to him, and and the the, the the Japanese are attacking at night, and it's chaos, and you think they're going to get overrun, and every you know everyone depends on everyone else and on his comrades, and the guy looks down and he and he sees one of his buddies sort of writhing around in the bottom of the of, of the foxhole, and he thinks, oh god, he's been hit, you know. And, and, and eventually they, they beat off the Japanese and he looks down and he realizes that the guy hasn't been hit at all. He just, he's just in a funk. He lost his nerve. He, uh, and it's kind of how I feel about I, I, it. It's not contempt so much as I feel almost embarrassed for them. Pity. 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 Yeah. I don't hate them. I just think, how, how could you? You're going to be judged for this. They are. They're not yeah. going to be able to stand in the judgment. Well, that's the feeling, almost the feeling that I have is that. I, I, I don't know about the judgment because these people don't believe in the judgment. And, and so I wouldn't, it wouldn't come yeah, in. But it's gonna, it's the, the judgment's yeah. going to find, find them whether they believe yeah. in it or not. But if, like, I, I kind of think, I think, well, what would I say to this person to kind of either get plumb their, their, what their actions or maybe begin the process of changing their minds? And, and really, I don't. I, I'm always confounded for something to say because not that I meet them now, I don't. And I mean, I avoid going to places where I might, even things like funerals. I, 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 unless it was a very particular situation, a very close situation, I wouldn't go uh, because of the risk of meeting such people. Uh, not that I'm afraid of them or anything like that, uh, because I can hold my head up high now. You know, I believe. Yeah. And and you know, they're skulking around the place. You know. Writing, rewriting press releases for the government, and and and, and yes, that's what they do. That is what they do. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and and also they, the security they, services. They have to look to the editor to see what's approved this week. You know, what can I say about Israel? What can I say about Palestine? What can I say about you know Gaza? Uh, you know, because I need to tiptoe through all those landmines. Like you know, on that point, John, I've just I'm just writing a piece about the Israel 
Palestine thing. And I've noticed that one of the the fashionable tropes among the conservative um, commentariat, of which I used to be one, and all my old comrades are the 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 the, the current outrage is um, that um, the BBC refuses to use the word terrorist to describe um, Hamas and how outrageous this is. And another of their popular tropes, I saw I saw Charles Moore using it. I've 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 heard it wheeled out quite a few times by that this was the bit, the worst assault on Jews since the Second World War. So instantly, in the mind of the reader, the Holocaust. This is the worst thing since the Holocaust. And I'm thinking, hang on a second. What you're saying is very emotive and effective, but it is, it is demonstrably untrue. The biggest assault on the Jews in terms of death, so- death toll was carried out by Benjamin Netanyahu in cahoots with Pfizer between 21 and 22. An order of magnitude more Jews were killed by Pfizer and Netanyahu in their their aggressive vaccine rollout program. I, I, I shouldn't call them vaccines at all. Many, many more, at least 10 times more, probably more than that, than were killed in in gaza recently and what what i find extraordinary john is that the people i used to look at you know i used to look at charles moore and i think well you you know you're cleverer than me charles you you know you wrote you 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 were chosen to write margaret thatcher's authorized biography you edited the spectator you edited the sunday telegraph um and and Douglas Murray, you know, I always thought you were you were not only braver than me, putting your ne- your neck on the line to expose these evil Islamists, but also you know you're you're so clever as well. And these clever, clever, educated people who are you know who who have a higher market value than I had, they're they're in demand and everything. They were completely silent during. COVID, despite all these despite mass murder taking place on an epic, epic scale at the behest of governments. Yes. And so they're hot for war, hot for a third world war over, over Israel, but they cannot see that more Israelis, more Jews were killed by, the, by their own government because of vaccine mandates. Well, then were, yeah, like, well, another, another one is Jordan Peterson. You know, who similarly, uh, you know, ignored the whole COVID thing. In fact, he didn't ignore it. At one point, he said, "Take the damn, take the damn vax." Yeah, and and uh, uh, he, but he, he like, he, I wrote a long article about all that uh, a couple of years back, and went through the whole thing and looked at his interviews and the way he would respond when asked about it. And he was basically evading the question. Like he would literally listen to the question, he would nod. And then he would change the subject, you know. And and but he comes out last week with this extraordinary tweet after the the, the Hamas attack on on Israel, uh, you know, um, tweeting Netanyahu, "Go get him, give him hell." Now, you know, and this is a guy. I mean, now I'm, I have to kind of confess something here because there's an event on in London in a couple of weeks' time in 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 the Docklands. Uh, which is being spearheaded by Peterson, and I've been invited. It's called the Ark. Um, oh yeah, yeah. 
for a response. It's a trap. Well, it did, this is interesting because I am I, coming to that view. Oh, no, I have arrived at that view, but I, I had booked my ticket and you have to pay for your ticket. It's not free or anything. Uh, it's a reduced rate and you have to get drawn hotel. But I'm curious and I want to go and I also want to ambush the whole thing if I can and ask some really pertinent questions about what's going on. Uh, but the, you know, for the, for a principal of an organization called the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, to put out that tweet at that moment has got to raise eyebrows everywhere, right? It's a mad thing to do. But but to go into the 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 the, the arc business, I mean, you said some. I think you said it's it's a trap. Yes, I think so. It is. You should look at Vox Day on this. Vox Day wrote a book called Jordan Ethics, where he exposed. Um, Jordan Peterson. I wrote an essay because I, you know, I was a fanboy for a while. Yeah. I thought, I thought when he owned that ghastly Channel Four newswoman. I, 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 I think with Newman. In, yes. in retrospect, I think that was a, a setup. I don't believe that 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 it was it was organic. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think it, it it was meant to be in order to bolster his reputation as, I mean, a left wing, a left wing psychiatry professor reinvents himself as the darling of the right through the medium of a of a, of a faked of a, of a contrived interview that that i think was the purpose of it i don't yes. i don't trust any 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 of the narratives that are that are sold to us by by the mainstream well, i no longer trust where, and I, where think, I began to worry about this was when i looked at the the pictures of the guys and there's all this bunch of you know shiny suited former australian politicians yeah, like Howard and 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 uh, Howard, one. yeah, I think he's in there. Yeah, well, I think the, like it's all these guys and and, but the point was, I am certain in the beginning I heard Peterson saying that what they were going to do was to take on the World Economic Forum. Now that's gone, that's that's just suddenly evaporated, and and it's now all about being a responsible citizen, and I suppose cleaning your room will be next, you know, and you know, uh, you know. It seems to me to be a, a, a way of diffusing energy, drawing in all of these energies uh, of expectations, people who actually are aware, very aware of this, because most people would have been plucked out of, you know, uh, podcasts and, and stuff. I'm surprised you weren't asked. Maybe they already know you're a skeptic. They, they, they've, they've sniffed me out already. They know. Yeah. Well, they didn't know about me, cause I, so I got invited. And... Uh, and I was kind of very intrigued in the beginning and thought, oh, yeah, let's take on the World Economic Forum for sure. But there's no talk about that now. And it's all about, you know, uh, just climate change, which is fine. You know, I have no problem with that. But that's just one issue. And it's not the most pressing issue at this moment. It's it's a synonym for lots of other issues in a certain sense. But, you know, we're talking here about a coup that has basically taken over the world. And could we actually speak this and, 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 and begin to discuss really what it is, what it's about, and what we're going to do with it? How are we going to restore the democratic ethos to, our, to Western civilization? By the way, we'll have to do a whole other podcast by the sounds of it on climate change, because that, that whole thing is my area of speciality. Oh, yes, and it's, yeah. it, total bollocks. Total bollocks. It, it, you know, it's I, another. But I, it's, what you say about Klaus Schwab is right. I remember... One of my former journalistic confrères, um, who lives in Switzerland, sends me these occasional uh, uh, 
jabbing missives, uh, accusing me of having lost the plot. And he says, you know, it's, it's absurd that you believe that Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum have the power to, to rule the world. And how did you fall for this nonsense? And the answer is, I didn't. I, I, I never thought of the WEF as anything other than a front for the much higher powers that that rule the world many of most of whose the highest levels we don't know their names and klaus schwab the reason that everyone has has got that the reason that klaus schwab talks like a a, a bond villain has never been able to mask to to master good english or at least with an english accent is part of the design the reason he w- he's pictured in that funny kind of space age outfit the reason there's a photograph of him on the beach in that in that see-through sort of uh, i don't know pedo weirdo outfit is because he is the designated hate figure and the yeah. the wef was there just long enough for for everyone to wake up and go we hate you we want you know you are bad for it, it uh, as you, as you say, for it to disappear like a like a puff of smoke in a puff of smoke because yeah. it's, it has served its purpose. And do you think, do you agree with me that there's a kind of a competition on for the hero's role, which hasn't been quite decided yet? And Peterson's in for that. Elon Musk is in for it. You know, they're all competing to see who's going to be the guy on the white charger who comes over the hill and, and, and rescues everybody. Oh, yeah. and, and don't forget Top G. Um, uh, Andrew Tate, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's gonna he's gonna save the world with his yeah. with his masculine way, masculinity. Uh, I wasn't, by the way, I wasn't making any editorial comment on the climate change issue. I agree with you, although I don't know uh. nearly as much about it as you do. But I, I agree in from what I've, I've written occasionally about it, but not as much as I should have. But uh, what I mean is that in the present moment, things like CBDCs are right up there in our faces. Uh, social credit these like climate change is coming hard behind is going to be part of that and but it, it seems to me that climate change is kind of like in a certain sense from a right-wing perspective a safe issue a conservative issue uh, uh whereas he's not going to go into the COVID stuff into the the cbdc stuff or any of that stuff and he, oh i see what you mean sorry i miss yeah sorry I'm, i misunderstood you yeah no, he, it, he's that's one of the thing. These, yeah He's one of these guys who constantly kind of throws out this thing about, well, you know, avoiding conspiracy theories, you know, uh, which is a real giveaway for a lot of these conservative guys. Like Douglas Murray, again, I mean, I, 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 I've read two of Douglas Murray's most recent books, uh, Strange Death of Europe and um, the other one. But the last one, I, I haven't opened it because of his behavior and the things he's saying. I'm going to, you know, uh, Ukraine. In the company of Bernard Henri Levy, did you ever hear worse in all your life? You know, to to give to spout propaganda on behalf of Zelensky. Yes, to 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 try and drag us into a war yeah. of no benefit to. I I think I I feel particularly resentful about people like Douglas, who's not gonna, who hasn't got children, is never going to have any children. Yeah. And I think people who are clamoring for war um, ought at the very least to have sons of, of, of military age, military call-up age before they do so. So yeah. that they've got a bit of skin in the game. 
Yes. Because otherwise, you. talk is cheap. I agree, and you kind of have to ask yourself, well, what this? Look, look, this is a form. Whatever way you put it, it's a form of U-turn for someone like Murray, right? Like it's not on course with what he was doing before. You know, I know there are new issues. COVID is a new issue, and and so sort of- oh, it's not. In, he said it's not in his wheelhouse, as as though somehow there was some. You know, well, it's that thing about trust the experts. I'm I'm not. I'm a Ukraine expert, but I'm not a. Yeah, or it's like it's like sports. Well, I, I do I do football, but I, I don't do uh, cricket. Yeah, you know, uh, you know. Sorry, but you know, it, it's not like that. Uh, yeah. Changing the back. So, but isn't it very interesting, James, that um, the uh, these guys used to call themselves the intellectual dark web? Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which the name? Well, I think the, the clue is in the word dark. Yeah, yeah. And and one after the other, they have shown themselves to be complete duds. You're like Peterson, uh, Murray, uh, Dave Rubin, Sam Harris, the Weinstein's. You know. Like half-arsed, weak, watery uh, commentaries on COVID, which when you emerge from them, listening to them, what do you say? What did I learn there? I learned that COVID exists and is a serious disease. Yeah, which in itself, but by the way, that, that's a, that's a tell in itself. The, there's um, Miri Miri Finch has this. I don't really come across her Substack. She's very good. Um, she's like a kind of young, younger, more attractive, a female James Dellingpo. And she says, if you know the name, they're in the game. And you look at, you look at the designated sort of populist fight back figures. Yes. Um, you look at, for example, uh, RFK Jr. So RFK Jr. Has, was, was pretty sound on on the, the the vaccines and on on covid and stuff being nonsense yeah. but but he's completely unsound on completely establishment on 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 climate change you look at you look at douglas he's he's sort of sad he's been right about immigration and, and a few other things oh, oh and the culture wars i mean they all they all do the culture yeah. wars that's an easy yeah. one um, yeah. You know, we, they can. It requires real courage to st- stick your head above the parapet and talk about pronouns. Um, yeah. But but he but but he was he was completely absent, absent. I mean, absent isn't even the word. He was beyond that. I mean, he just fled the field, screaming, crying uh, on 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 COVID. Yes. And, and and Andrew Tate. Okay, so he can talk the talk about maleness and about the the the. The, the feminization of our culture all of which is which is true but there are loads of us other issues that he won't go he won't go near so they all say a few of the things that the awake would like to hear but they they never do the whole the whole panoply because that's, that's their job their, their, their job is to is to, to lure us with little tidbits but never to deliver the the, the the full meal yes but there's another dimension of it as well james if you think about it that their silence on those issues is is actually deafening in the sense that it implies, well, these guys are so outspoken on all the relevant matters, whether it's pronouns or climate change or whatever, that if there was anything real about these, this stuff about COVID, they'd be on that as well. And the fact they're saying nothing has a thousand times more force in its silence than, it, you know, us going banging on for, for three weeks 
with facts and data, or Ed Dowd producing like a dozen books showing the amount, the levels of excess debts. Jordan Peterson's silence is far more articulate because it implies that there's nothing to this. Yes. And that's why they'll never be part of the congregation of the righteous. Yeah. Because I mean, they're not. Yeah. They are the ungodly, John. There's very few of us. I, I must say one person I do admire greatly is Naomi Wolf. I don't know. I mean, she's somebody who I, I kind of would have had a lot of differences with in the past from when she was a feminist and all that, you know. But she's really acquitted herself well. What do you think? She's another one. She's she's not, you know, yeah. No? <laughs> no. No. It, <laughs> I'm afraid to say there are no there are no heroes. It is better to trust in the Lord than put any confidence in man. It is no, better to no, trust no, in the Lord than put any confidence in princes. She has a book coming out which you might like the title of. Uh, it's yeah. called uh, Facing the Beast. What, is that the Beast 666? Yes. Well, you know, the thing is, she's, you know, she's currently hot for war over, over, over this Israel psyop. Is she? I yeah, kind of yeah. saw Beast of us kind of seem to be sitting on the fence and saying, look, we shouldn't nah. take sides. I, I, I don't begrudge success, but I, but I, in this world, I, I, it does raise a few questions. Anyone who's making serious money is is there for a reason. It's because they, with a capital T, have permitted them to do so because they want them to be. Yeah, that is. There's something in that, I guess. You know, uh, there's something in that. But it, you know, uh, I, at the same time, James, you know, I I I become. I mean, the, the you know the idea of. You can dismantle the world in front of yourself by being too aware of how. I get this. I, I hear this all the time from a certain strand of my of my. They, they say, "Why are you so cynical?" Look, at least they're saying, "You know, look at Russell Brand. He's he's probably radicalized more more people than you'll ever reach." And you're thinking, "Yeah, but it's a trap." Yeah. He's he's luring the he's a Pied Piper. They're all Jordan Peterson is a Pied Piper. They the you you put your finger on it. The problem is that they use their cre credibility in one area to then discount the argument in another area. Yeah. That's that's why they're dangerous. It's not it's yes. not what they say that is true that that is is the problem. It's what they what they do not mention, which is yes. the, which is the issue. Yeah. yeah, because it's like it's like that. You know, I always think about journalism and then on commentary in the context of a very good metaphor. I think for this is an airplane. And you're flying along, and there's sudden, you know, the the the, the stewards are the, are giving out coffees and teas, and the 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 trolleys and all that. And next thing, there's quite serious turbulence. Yeah. And what do you do? You look to the stewards. You do. To see, are they panicked? Are they running? Good are analogy. They, are they abandoning the trolley? You know. And if they're not, you say it's okay. No matter how yeah. it feels, it's okay. And in journalism and in commentary, that's a huge factor. That's the factor we're looking at here, where there is this misdirection given by virtue of Jordan just standing there saying, no big deal here, there's no pandemic, or there's a pandemic, and yeah, we, we were lucky to escape it, you know, and uh, 
I got the vax, you know, you're lucky it's still alive, you know, that kind of thing, you know, and, 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 and Douglas Murray, who is known to be stuck in everything, to have an opinion about just about everything, has no opinion about this. Well, the fact that he has no opinion is also, in a way, in another sense, telling. I, I noticed this about a particular comedian in Ireland, that I, he was a very funny guy and really kind of really, but he never did jokes about COVID. And I was thinking about this. What does that mean? Well, I know what it means. It means that he knows it's bullshit, but he knows better than to actually make jokes that say it's bullshit. Because if he didn't think it was bullshit, he'd be slagging me off. He'd be making jokes about me if he didn't know. And and so I, I don't know which is worse, you know, uh, to to actually not talk about something or to 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 dismiss it. And um, but the 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 conditions that we have created. I don't think I was talking to somebody there recently, Mark Matthew Arith there, you know, was in Ireland there last year, and we were talking about this and. I was trying to describe him how I saw it from a journalistic point of view, how serious this situation is, that it's utterly unprecedented, you know, because the capacities of, of the media now to create pseudo realities and false realities and, and a sense of, you know, that they can actually put out truthful information, but undermine it by giving it a lower profile than it sh should have achieved. Like if, if somebody says, you know, to you in the street, um, he, Boris Johnson has been assassinated, and you go home and you 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 get it, you go to bed and you forget about it. And next morning you go up and you pick up the morning paper and you know, and the front page is a story about you know strike at uh, you know London Transport or something. And see, so, you know, but like is that so? You, it's not true. It's not there. You know, it's not where it should be. And then on page three, even if it's on page three, it's Boris Johnson assassinated you think that that can't be true because it would be on page one you know you know that kind of thing they're doing all these kind of tricks you know and and people are actually looking to the media for that verification and they're not being they're not being told what they should be told is that this is wrong this is evil this is exactly what your gut is telling you trust your gut trust your repugnance and and because that's happening People are actually distrusting their own instincts. And they're actually going then, they're giving more trust then to the people telling the lies. And, and so at, at many deep levels, um, there are many undertoes of this that are completely unprecedented. And, you know, I, you know, like another one is that, that you remember Alistair Campbell, uh, bless the mark, uh, used to uh, say that if something to the effect that if a politician who's in trouble in the media can't get the story off the front pages within a week, he's toast, right? Something like that. That was the principle, right? That you've got to be, you've got to get it off the front pages, or else you're gone, you know. And and but that's no longer true, J James. You know, in the sense that you know there are no consequences necessarily, except the media want to make something consequential. You know that if if you if you know. If you're discovered, if Pfizer uh, admit that their uh, vaccine uh, or so-called vaccine is causing pericarditis and myocarditis, which they now have, that should be the front page headline on the Irish Times, the Guardian and all that. And because it's not, in a certain sense, it becomes untrue. It never happened. Yes. Yeah. In, in the same way, 
people think, well, okay, so there were these stories about Matt Hancock when he was health secretary, sort of murdering effectively old people in old people's homes in order to ramp up the death figures um, using midazolam, the sort of death yes. pathway drug. Yes. And because the guy is used to be on I'm a Celebrity and then subsequently on this new SAS Who Dares Wins comp uh, TV show, people look at this and thinking, well, he can't, he can't have done the terrible things that they say he has, because if he had, he wouldn't be on a TV game show. That's right. The, the media, the media would have would have exposed him. The paper, it would be in the papers. James, but there's even more darker things than that happening as well. And yesterday only, I saw a picture. There's a particular scientist, one of these kind of tin strip experts who basically. Did, caused the country to be closed down for 22 months back a couple of years ago and he's on he was on all the shows and he even even was that he, he brought out a book and he used to play the guitar and he used to go to arts festivals and he was a big star for the summer of 22 or 20 whatever it was but his latest thing now he's promoting this new device which believe it or not James is a new way of disposing of human bodies right it's it's been it's been touted as a replacement for burial or cremation. You just lash the body in there and it chews it all up and turns it into something else and they spread it out on the lawn or whatever. I don't know what I said, but the idea like that he can do this and parade around this thing around and talk about it implicitly, you mightn't actually ever articulate. The person watching might never articulate something as crude as, well, God, no, you know, Jesus, I, he couldn't have been responsible for all the murderers, like as they're saying, if, if he's promoting that thing, you know. Like, Jesus, they, they never do that, would he? But the people think that down here, thinking, well, that he looks, God, yeah, okay, dead bodies, yeah, 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 it's very necessary, yeah, very, very important, very good, very good advice, sounds looking, looks good, you know, you know. And, and, but the impact of it is to rubbish the idea that he could possibly have any sense of guilt about what he's done. Yeah. The BBC, I mean, I think I'm, I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not going to call it the BBC anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to call it for now. I'm going to call it Big Black Cock. <laughs> just, just, just because. <laughs> big, big, big Black Cock did this uh, one-off the other day with, with, Greg Wallace, the the the, the former greengrocer turned Master Chef co-host, you know, cheerful Greg Wallace, and it was a spoof in which Greg Wallace um, visited a factory where they were turning humans, human flesh, into into meat for for public consumption, and. Yeah. You, you think well what they're doing here is sort of ridiculing an idea which is probably somewhere down the line you know we're, we're heading towards soylent green and yeah. it was this is how they operate they they play with our with our, our heads so that we don't know what's what's real and what's what's unreal what is good and what's bad because people have lost i mean people have that as, as i said earlier they, they still have an inbuilt moral compass but it's designed to kind of 
take a magnet in front of the moral the moral compass to to sign kind of skew its workings yeah that's right and again the sign the subtext that is read by the the viewer is well implicitly uh, if if my suspicions were well founded they wouldn't be doing this kind of stuff yes exactly that um john I, I, listen one one thing i think everyone will agree after this after this chat we've had is that we should not leave it a year and a half or two and a half years before our next podcast. We've got we've got to do another one sooner because I love talking to you. We're, we are totally on the same page. Yes. Um, what, yeah. Tell me, um, what, where can people find your stuff and, and uh, all that? I'm, it's very easy. I'm on Substack, johnwaters.substack.com. Uh, uh, John Waters Unchained, is the, that'll get it as well. And that's that's it. I'm not anywhere else. I don't do any uh, social media or any stuff like that, you know. So, yeah. And is it working for you, the Substack business model? <laughs> not not as well as for Naomi Wolf, shall we say. <laughs> she gets six million, I think, you know. <laughs> I, I'm so obviously not. Uh... Yeah. Uh, no, but it's, I mean, Ireland is a small country. It's a, it's a, but, you know, I, I work hard at it. I probably work a lot harder than I, you know, I'm not being paid for my work. But I don't care. I'm happy no. to do it. Because, you know, there's multiple kind of, I want to communicate the, these things, but I also want to leave behind something that will be a record. And I have to now think about how I get all this material off of Substack and into books, because I believe that they can wipe Substack out tomorrow morning. Uh, but a book, even if you have only two copies of a book, there's a good chance that at least one of them will survive through time if somebody is prudent enough to hide it away. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's, that's wise. I, I keep thinking about that as well. Um, I, I've so enjoyed talking to you. Um, and if, dear viewers and listeners, um, please keep watching. Keep, oh, subscribe. I never say subscribe, but do that. Definitely subscribe. But also um, support me. Really, I, 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 I mean, like John, I'm dependent on, on my living now for, for, for my, my podcasts and my substacks and stuff. You can support me on Substack, Patreon, um, uh, subscribe style, locals, buy me a coffee. And I really appreciate it. Um, and um, thanks for watching. Um, and thank you again, John. Let's thanks. definitely do another one soon. Very okay? soon. Thanks, James. Yeah, let's okay. do it. Great. Maybe thanks after the Buckner Prize comes out, if it wins. Oh, I'm, I'm, I might even put money on that. I wonder what the odds are. Let's see. Profits are. Let's see. Welcome. To the Dellingpod with me, James Dellingpole. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but it's even better than that. This is a promo for the event you've all been waiting for. You wanted me to do a live event in the North. I'm going to be doing a live event in the North, in Manchester. You've been angling for ages to get me to do a podcast with one particular person. I've held off till now, but finally the moment has come. Dellingpole meets Ike. Yup. I am going to do a live podcast event with the guy you could almost call the god, well, certainly the living godfather of all the conspiracy theorists. I mean, most of them have been bumped off, of course, but not David. And I hope he, he stays around till this live event. Um, same applies to me, actually. It's going to be in Manchester, as I said, 
and it's on November the 15th. I'm really looking forward to seeing you all there. You can get your tickets, book them while they're still available. You can get them on Eventbrite. You'll find the details below this little advertlet. Anyway, see you there. It's going to be fun. Bye. <laughs>